Early in my ministry, a bewildered man I'll identify as Roger showed up at the church I was serving, reeling, reeling from a devastating loss. Once the father of two sons, I learned that his youngest died of asphyxiation from a carrot lodged in his trachea that no maneuver, Heimlich or otherwise, could release. And worse, the tragedy occurred during a party with family and friends on his son's fourth birthday. Overwhelmed in grief and guilt that was disintegrating their marriage, Roger and his wife sought out counseling. Unfortunately, the counselor had inadequate professional boundaries allowing the therapeutic transference to lead him into an affair with Roger's wife. Convinced their love was genuine, she divorced Roger. He moved away and wound up in my town and my church pew one Sunday, humbled and emotionally exhausted. But functioning well enough to seek out a nurturing community. I quickly came to know a thoughtful, reflective man wanting to rebuild his life with his older son, now a young teenager for whom he had full custody. A year or so went by when I received a frantic call from Roger. He was at the hospital emergency room. Riding a bicycle on a busy state highway, his son had been struck by a car. It was bad, Steve, he said. Roger was choked with emotion. I hopped in my car and met him at the hospital and wound up spending the next 10 hours or so sitting, sometimes pacing with him around the hospital campus. Now, I was a promising and earnest but rather green minister. Although I was learning there's not a lot to say in these kinds of circumstances, it was generally enough to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually present. So we didn't talk much for several hours waiting for some news. And honestly, I found the silence professionally safe. But after a particularly long stretch, Roger said quietly, Steve, Steve, tell me about faith. What is it? How, how do you get it? And I sensed immediately that he was profoundly spiritually alert and available in this moment. His question, confusion, and desire were all very palpable. A deep, transparent, and unencumbered conversation ensued. He was calm, collected. I didn't feel very smart or adequate to the moment, and I told him so. He accepted that. Actually, Roger said he found some comfort in that. 
And so our hearts met in that mystical space created by our several inadequacies, helping one another to receive the faith that only comes as a gift. Eventually we got word that his son would live, but he was going to have a long journey in front of him. And I thought to myself, that's a good metaphor for Roger and me too, and for all the rest of us. Every once in a while, I pull down an old tattered volume from my bookshelf entitled The Meaning of Faith, written by Harry Emerson Fosdick in 1917. You might recall that Fosdick was the favorite of John D. Rockefeller, who built the Riverside Church for him about the same time that Christ Church got built here. It was the day of the high-profile learned preacher, the day when New York City papers published front-page articles on Monday summarizing the content of at least one of the big steeple stars from Sunday. It's hard to imagine that today, hard to imagine the New York Times publishing a summary of anyone's preacherly remarks from the day before, right? A very different day indeed. Among these stars, Fosdick was something of a standout of thoughtful erudition, effectively connected to real life. Here's how he begins. A book on faith has been for years my hope and intention And now it comes to final form during the most terrific war men ever waged, when faith is sorely tried and deeply needed. Direct discussion of the war has been been purposely avoided, but many streams of thought within the book flow in channels that the war has worn. Since the conflict had to come, I am glad for this book's sake that it was not written until it had Europe's Holocaust for a background. Now given the copyright, the war he is referencing is the First World War, one that he will later call the Great War and that was euphemistically thought of as the war to end all wars. And the Holocaust he mentions predates the devastation of the Jews which came several decades later and captured forever the meaning of that word. Well, now closing in on a century since Fosdick wrote his reflections, this week I considered all of the wars that have been fought since, up to and including our present moment. Many terrible wars made the 20th century the bloodiest century in human history. And we're not off to a very good start in the 21st, are we? The First World War was Fosdick's war of the moment his present circumstance, stirring him to consider the meaning of faith that, as he said, is sorely tried and deeply needed. Now, of course, he was speaking at a different time to a rather different audience, a very large national audience that would have shared many of the same religious and worldview perspectives. We're a lot more diverse today. A lot more challenging in that sense, I think. But as for all of that diversity, 
We still yearn for that robust connection to something larger than ourselves that reliably organizes and empowers our lives, something we still call faith. That's what Roger was wanting for certain. He was not lost in the morass of seeking a magical solution to his life situation. That wasn't the nature of his question to me. He was longing for a sturdy sense that the world made sense, that life and love had meaning and purpose and directionality. It has long been said that human hardship is the universal context for forging faith. That was the case for Fosdick in 1917, and it is the case for us in 2016. If I were to write a new volume on the meaning of faith today, I would start from a different cultural standpoint, but I tell you, human hardship would still figure prominently. How could it not? And even a brief engagement with the Bible reveals that human hardship and struggle frames it out frames the human cycle of birth and death. That struggle is the anvil upon which faith is forged. That was certainly true of Jesus' experience. He lived in a time of competing worldviews, clashing religious perspectives, and colliding politics. Sound familiar? His own death tells the tale on that. He walked among real people struggling through real-life problems and conundrums, yet through the fog of the gathering storm around him, he illuminated a bright and searing message about faith and trust and hope and love. He embodied a message about faith from within human experience. It wasn't offered as an observation from a far distance. It was rooted in our experience of life and death and everything else that is crammed in between. So, you know, it's not surprising that Paul, writing from prison to Timothy, should mention that he remembers Timothy's tears as he also fortifies Timothy's faith. Isn't that a lovely thing? Timothy, my beloved child, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, recalling your tears. Have you ever received a letter like that? I am reminded of your sincere faith. Rekindle the gift of God that is within you, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love. Sprung from the universal human condition, tears express the universal human need. Along with light and truth, we need healing, hope, and courage to live in a way that fosters these very same ennobling things. All of these are pieces of the larger whole we call faith. Breaching for this larger way of living is not easy. It's no wonder that Jesus' friends exclaim, Lord, increase our faith. Now I'm thinking it would not be a great insight to assume that most everyone here hungers for greater faith. Fosdick put it this way, don't we hunger for the confidence that 
someone, capital S, cares about our race in its conflicts and defeats? Don't we hunger for an intimate friend, a divine ally, who, in the midst of the world's darkness and our own, assures us that life is not chance and chaos, but rooted in a great design? And don't we yearn for the gift to live our lives with confidence and joy, no matter what, capable of true grace and love? I have surely felt those things vibrating in my heart and soul my whole life. God, if you're out there or in here, increase my faith. And I'm guessing most of you have shared this experience in some form. So this is where you help me write this sermon. This is where you insert your own story your bit of the larger human drama, the part that matters deeply and desperately to you. I'll give you a moment to do that. Go ahead, bring it to consciousness. No one's watching you. They're looking up here. Bring your story, your heartache, your struggle, your concern, your faltering steps at love and forgiveness, your faltering steps at courage and integrity. Bring all of that to mind. Now, maybe you have never said these words out loud, Lord, increase my faith. But I'm telling you, it's a very important prayer. Very important. The disciples give us permission to say it insistently. It reflects the deep hunger that wells up from time to time. You may feel that hunger now or perhaps a little bit later on the way home or maybe tomorrow or the next day or the next month. It's an honest hunger, I tell you. An honest hunger. And I say, let it come! Feel your stomach rumble for real food. Feel your need and say out loud, Lord, increase my faith. Jesus says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. Ironically, it would seem that by asking their questions, the disciples reveal they already have the faith the size of a grain of mustard. They think that's their problem. What they have is too small. Jesus seems to be implying that the faith they have is already the faith they need. A tiny bit in the hands of God is the same thing as a whole lot. Locked within the confines of an impossibly small and dead-looking thing lays the potential for abundant, triumphant life. Like a kind of cosmic spiritual genetics embedded within the tiny speck of our embryonic faith is the complete code of everything we might become as we nourish ourselves from God's bounty. Tell me that isn't a miracle. Exactly the same miracle as the mustard seed that grows into a great big.
you dare believe it's true? And friends, on this point, it does not matter who we are. Age, life, circumstance, gender, race, favorite sins. At this most basic level, we are all alike. The biblical drama could use all of us for its source material. We are the last act currently being written. The biblical story continues to write us, as it were, as the latest testament to faith. Our tears could express the biblical lament, I tell you. Our bit of faith, our fledgling courage and faltering love could be the seeds that Jesus nurtures into transformed life. We are now the stumbling, bumbling disciples who learn about the things that matter most the hard way. But learn we will, and we will thrive in love for love's sake, I tell you. From us could come the gospel. The gospel according to Lane. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Peter. The letter to Carolyn. Do you see? Do you see? That's really the point of all of this, friends. That is the point. That's why we come here, isn't it? Isn't that why we come to this reunion table month after month to feed our souls on rich food that will sate the deepest hunger? And imagine... It's open to everyone who would come. Everyone. 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 And again, everyone. This revelation comes by way of faith. We don't get there another way. We sense the deep truth, but considering the world's record of wars and other human difficulties and hardships, the way we slice and dice humanity, we recognize that but for this mustard-sized germ of faith, we would not know we are all alike and found acceptable, sprung from the same divine genetic stock, nurtured with relentless forgiveness and grace, and meant to be gathered around the same family table, but each one of us has our place here, counters the deadening effects of hopelessness in our individual experience, in the world's experience, and holds forth the promise of abundant life. Friends, this is the flowering of faith. There is no greater gift, none. So for God's sake, well, for your sake and for the world's sake, receive it with arms and hearts wide, wide open.